Hey, uh, welcome to the Brooks Online Gathering. My name is Muchi Ukebo. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If this is your first time connecting with us in this way, a special welcome to you. Thank you for joining us, especially in the moment that we're in. Thank you. Uh, in the chat, wherever you are engaging with us from, there's a link that we would love for you to fill out uh, so that we could connect you to the life of our church. Here at the church, we exist to grow eight people from all people passionate for God. Um, part of that passion we're actually going to talk about um, in depth today, specifically through Isaiah chapter 1. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, it, it really reflects a passion for us as a church, and it speaks directly to the moment that we find ourselves in. You would have to be under a rock to not understand the vast emotional rhetoric that is experienced right now where people are, are, are crying for their souls, where there's also confusion in the public square. There's angst everywhere. COVID and now cultural tension that has always been here, creating this climate of confusion, of angst, and for some, my, myself, honestly, a level of exhaustion, where it feels like, oh, here we go again, like you're like re-traumatizing yourself, you know? But, but what, I, what, I, what I've sensed in my heart, what, what God honestly has been calling me to the carpet on through this text in particular is that Exhaustion is understandable, and man, some of us are more exhausted than others. But for me, Muchi, personally, and I think for believers in particularly, there's a type of fatigue that shouldn't cause us to recoil and, and move away from Jesus, but it should cause us to lean in and find rest, strength, and a reason to endure. Because what's causing us exhaustion, the pursuit of justice, the pursuit of equity, the pursuit of righteousness, righteousness being God's governing standard, his moral law, his governing standard for all life, how we should relate to one another, how we should relate to him, Justice being concrete actions that accord with righteousness. Concrete actions to make right what has been wronged. To make whole that which is broken personally and systemically. That the pursuit of that. And seeing it not take place is exhausting. Uh, there's an image that I use in counseling. I uh, didn't come up with it, it was given to me, but I use it, use it in premarital, use it in any type of counseling. And the idea is that in life there's battles. And you can look at battles as hills. And there's certain hills that you should just fight for, you should die on that hill. And there's certain hills where you're like, man, that's just not a battle that you really just need to fight. It's not that big of a deal. Marriage in particular, right? And so, should we keep cable? Direct TV, should we cut the cords and go YouTube, YouTube TV, Hulu, Netflix, some type of hybrid? That's probably not a battle that you are worth dying over. That's not a hill you should die on, okay? Charter school, private school, public school, it's, that's a pretty big battle, but do we die there? 
maybe, maybe not. Humility and wisdom need to be applied to see if we should based on relationship. But how are we going to shape our family? What is going to be the value system, the ethos that brings us together that we commend to our kids and their kids to the generations to come? That's a hill worth dying on. The pursuit of justice is a hill worth dying on because it's tied to the very heart of God. And some people have felt exhausted because as they are charging this hill to see the heart of God spread all places. And when we get to this portion of this hill that, that gets to justice and equity being given everywhere, that, that what's broken is being mended and what's wronged is being righted. And when we get to this hill, as we are running and charging, we look to the left, we look to the right, and it's like, what happened? Why are we alone? Why is it that the very people who claim to be part of the heart of God, part of his family, are now abandoning us in this journey? If that is your story, you're un you're you are understandably exhausted. But I want to speak to you today in a way that, man, maybe you could find a different level of endurance, another gear. If that's not your story, if you're just like, man, I just don't even know why this is a big deal, honestly. One of the gifts of pastoring the church that we pastor is we're all across the map, ethnically, economically, culturally, politically. And some of you are like, man, I don't even know why this is a big deal. That, that hopefully it, it, would, it would rise in your economy of battles and hills worth dying on. And some of you have abandoned Christianity in the church altogether because you're like, man, it doesn't feel like the church actually is relevant to what's happening in my world. It's not useful, nor does it make God beautiful that you would reconsider, reconsider that this is actually part of God's heart and for, for those that, who disagree, you're disagreeing, you're like, man, black guy preaching, we knew what it was going to be. <laughs> that maybe with a little humility, that we could look at the text together and arrive at a conclusion that this is foundational to the family of God because it's found in the very heart of God. And that we could arrive at another conclusion, that when we, as God's people, abdicate our identity or unclear concerning our identity and responsibility to be the compass of mercy and justice. When we abdicate that or are unclear about it, everyone suffers. So we could come to that conclusion by looking at Isaiah. Isaiah gives us a stunning, I mean, it is an absolutely stunning indictment. It's a rebuke that reveals some stuff as well as this call to action. So that'll be our time um, together in the text. We'll see the dynamics of this stunning indictment and what they reveal, but then also the dynamics of this clear, precise call to action. And then we'll close with what I hope is, is hope uh, for us in Miami, in our moment and beyond. Isaiah, um, read with me um, if you have a Bible. If you don't, uh, you can hit pause and then you could grab it and join us. Isaiah chapter one, starting in verse, verse 14, all the way down to verse 17. It reads like this. Your new moon festivals, your appointed feast, my soul hates. <laughs> they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, 
I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. <laughs> Your hands are full of blood. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. I like that. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Clear, precise, foundational, stunning. Isaiah, I love this book. Isaiah is like the crown jewel of the Old Testament, man. It is a book filled with just rich poetry, rich images about life, but also about God. More importantly about God, it just pulls the heart to awe. Isaiah 40, it is just one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible where, where you just get this massive picture of the majesty of God. That he's transcended, that he stretches out the heavens like a robe, like a jacket to dwell in. That he knows the stars by name and he calls them out, the host of heavens, none of them are lost. He's, he, he's, he's, he's mighty, he's majestic. He's transcendent. But then you get Isaiah 55. It's actually where my name comes from, my whole name. Isaiah 55, where, 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 where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. You can't box me in. I'm not geometry. I'm not algebra. I'm not subject matter that you could master with your mind. I'm a transcendent being, altogether different, holy, beautiful, righteous. But then you get Isaiah 1, which shows that God isn't just this transcendent being over there but he is intimately concerned and involved with the affairs of humanity. He's transcendent yet personal. Isaiah is a crown jewel. It's a book of prophecy. Now we know prophecy as it's traditionally used, but this book is book of prophecy comprehensively. So we know prophecy as it relates to foretelling. Right? So prophecy that is future-oriented. Even Isaiah 1 has some of that, where it's future-oriented. God is going to say, there's going to be judgment coming because of the absence of justice. So we know that there's prophecy that is future-oriented. Thus says the Lord, there will be something in the near or far future. One of those prophecies is Jesus, wonderful counselor unto us, a child is born. Glorious child, this seed who was prophesied in Genesis that will right every wrong. He will deal with every brokenness. He will deal with the sin that has stained the world. He will deal with the separation between God and man. He will be a righteous branch that will grow into a tree giving shade 
to all who find life in him. Foretelling, prophecy in there. But it's not just that type of prophecy. There's another aspect of prophecy, which isn't just foretelling. It's not just, thus says the Lord, this will be in some future time, whether near or far. It's, thus says the Lord, this must be now. It's truth-telling. It is prophecy that is applying the truth of God's words to a particular moment. That's all Isaiah 1 is that. That prophecy, that prophetic word, it's a stunning indictment. New moons, festivals, yo, they're wearying me. He is saying that this thing that, these things that are traditionally signified as quote unquote spiritual activity are worthless. <laughs> he, he's saying that, God is saying, what you're doing is actually breaking my heart. This activity that exists, the intent of all quote unquote spiritual activity is to pull us closer to God and then plunge us into his heart. And he's saying that this activity in particular, it's not pulling us close. It's not plunging us deeper. It's revealing that we're disconnected. Because what's absent from this religious activity, what's absent from quote unquote spiritual activity, the spiritual life is social engagement. He is interlocking the spiritual life with social engagement justice. Now, that causes some of us to cringe. If you, if you are in a particular denomination or you may even have a particular cultural location, right? So you, you, you may be more Western European in your ideology. Like that may cause you to cringe. What does that sound like? But honestly, this is who we are as the people of God. All of the universities, <laughs> the majority of them, that, that they cost, I mean, thousands of dollars to go to where student loans, right. those came from Christians who were like, yo, like education matters and society should grow wiser and there should be greater expressions and experiences of literacy so that people could actually read their Bible and have their souls refreshed and transformed schools. Red Cross, all of these humanitarian agencies, that was Christians who said, we see the ills of the world. We see society stepping over particular people and we must apply the truth of the gospel that our neighbor's good should be as important as our own to our neighbor by caring for them. All of these, this is, this is, this is a Christian heritage. But the cringe factor, I think, is because we understand the interlocking of the spiritual life and social engagement, but we're really only comfortable when we are the ones setting the agenda for that social engagement. That's why you won't find many people who will accuse or assign derogatory or derogative language and 
names to people who every march, march for life. Who say that the rights of the unborn, the sanctity of life is to be protected. That conception doesn't start when a child takes its first breath. It starts in the womb. Psalm 139, I knew you in the womb. So we will, we will engage socially for that because of the demands that our spiritual life places on us. You won't find derogatory words or names thrown at people who mark the back of their hand with a red X to say, we need to end human trafficking in our day. Nobody's like, yeah, that's a terrible idea. No, we know that people are worthy of freedom. We know it's tied to the Imago Day that you should be free to know who God is. You have inherent dignity. We know that you shouldn't live life under the thumb of another human. We know that. It really only becomes cringeworthy when we're not the ones setting the agenda or when there's an agenda that we quote unquote don't agree with, specifically when it's around issues of race, culture, and ethnicity. But issues of race, culture, and ethnicity are tied to the Imago Dei, the image of God. Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two, in it we have that the image of God is inherently beautiful. There's dignity associated with it. It's also inherently communal, that the image of God is plural. We exist in community because God exists in community. We need each other. Gender is also tied to the image of God. He made them male and female. Gender norms as a society that we live in shouldn't shape the truth that God looks at gender and says, oh, that's beautiful. That's glorious. But you know what else is tied there? Ethnicity. <laughs> this is why at the end of the Bible, you have people in eternity identified by their ethnicity. Because ethnicity isn't something that you do away with when you get to eternity. It's something that you progress and grow in and understand and celebrate and champion in the here and now. And we also know that sin has affected all aspects of the Imago Dei and people are abusive in all aspects of the Imago Dei and we don't care for the vulnerable and we have ethnic tension. The interlocking of our spiritual life and social engagement is part of the Christian story. And the stunning indictment here is it's not interlocking well. But the stunning indictment, while obviously spiritual, has some other dynamics to it. There's a personal dynamic to it. This is what he says. Your hands are full of blood. You're lifting your hands in prayer, but your hands are full of blood because there's this disconnect behind how you are engaging in the world around you and the truth you claim to live by. Your hands are full of blood. It's, it's personal, but it's collective. We notice to be collective because you cannot disconnect verse 15 from verses 21 through 26. 
it's all a rebuke, the center of which is this call back to repentance. He says, yo, this is wicked, this is wrong, but though it is sin and your sins are like scarlet, let's reason together and you will see that I offer forgiveness and I produce repentance and I want to produce restoration. All of it is a rebuke. That's why we can't disconnect 15 from 21 through 26, and we see that it's not just personal, it's collective. Let me read, and, and, and I'll unpack why we come to that conclusion. Verse 21, it says this, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Here's what he just said. He said, the hands that are full of blood make up a people and a society where injustice prevails. He's getting at this collective responsibility. Now, that doesn't mean everybody was acting in an unjust way, but it does mean everybody was part of this unjust people. That also causes some of us to cringe, but the Bible speaks in this language all the time about this corporate connectedness, if you will, and subsequent corporate responsibility. This is Joshua 7 with the sin of Ancud. Go read it, fascinating story. One man sins and his entire family suffers. In fact, if you're in an Eastern context, you understand corporate connectedness and corporate responsibility very well. This is Nehemiah chapter one, where he gets word that Jerusalem's walls are just desolate and the people have lost their dignity and he starts to weep and he fasts and he lifts up his voice to God knowing that's where his help comes from. And as he prays, Nehemiah 1, he identifies with the sins of his forefathers. He's like, yo, God, my people have left you. And because they left you, they've brought upon this situation in my time because you're not a liar. This is Daniel chapter 9. And honestly, this is Christianity 101. If you're reformed in your soteriology, I am. This is, this is what we preach. This is the Christian salvation story. That God announced this blessing, that God made man in his image after his own likeness, that God made man for relationship, that God said, I have a standard to govern this relationship, that man said, I don't care about your standard that governs this relationship, I will do my own thing. God says that your lack of care and concern for this standard and your actions of doing your own thing is called sin, and that sin produces brokenness and death all around you, and the ultimate expression of that death is not just separation in this life, but separation for eternity. But God says, no, I don't, I don't want that for you. I don't want just separation for you. I want life. I want relationships. So I will send myself, Jesus. And Jesus comes and he lives this standard well. He lives the life that we could not live, though we were called to. 
And he dies the death that we should die so that we don't have to. And what Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 both articulate is this simple phrase. In Adam, all men die. But in Jesus, all men live. We as people are connected to larger historical communal narratives. All of us. That is Christianity. That is humanity. And the text is identifying that there's personal and collective aspects to this indictment. They're not just personal and collective. They're social in in the sense that they create a society and they're systemic. Now, that also may cause some of us to cringe. But but let, let me help you see it. Intellectual honesty. To be intellectual, intellectually honest. One would look at this and say, wait a second. It says that this was a city of righteousness. This was a home where, where God's standards flourished and people flourished as a result of it. But now this is a place, this is a people where murders are comfortable, where people who kill others are cool and run free. This is a people and this is a place that allows for a bribe to thrive. That people could fudge, be contortionists with the truth, and others are okay with it. People run after it. Intellectual honesty would look at this and say, yo, man, that's messed up. That's wicked. And then it would ask some questions. It would ask the question, well, how did this wickedness come to be? But then it would also ask the question, how does this wickedness continue to be? How do you have a society that persists with such pain and brokenness? And one would say, well, obviously it's the people, but then you also have to look at the structures. We know this to be true. That's why if you watch any story about embezzlement, about laundering, you watch Ozark, Netflix, you watch whatever, you know that there are such a thing as offshore accounts, right? Like that there's offshore accounts in Sweden, offshore accounts in Panama, offshore accounts in other places, places where there are loose financial laws that allow for the hiding of money. So people say, I'm just gonna put my money over there, I'm not gonna put my money in American banks. You know, if, if you've seen Batman, you know, The Dark Knight Rises, one of the, I mean, you know that there are certain places where their extradition laws aren't that strong. And so if I commit a crime in America, I'm like, I got to get out of here. I got to flee to X place because they're not going to send me back to America. You know that it's not just the people in the society It's the systems and structures that make up the society ran by the people. And the text speaks to this because look, the text is going to identify this problem, this this wickedness, this city that's losing her identity, that's exchanging it for something that's broken. God is going to bring judgment, but at the end, he's going to promise restoration. He's going to say, 
I will restore you. You will be a faithful city again. But the means to doing that, he's going to say in verse 26, are righteous judges and counselors. They're going to be people who with humility, courage, wisdom, and integrity establish justice amongst other people, for people within the society. We know that we're not just connected to larger historic communal narratives. We know that as people, we interact with social ethics and social ethics interact with us. We live in an ecosystem. We don't live in an isolated chamber. Stunning indictment with a variety, a variety of, of dynamics, all of which show us the need for justice to prevail. In fact, when justice doesn't prevail in the heart of the people of God, society looks like verse 21 through 26. God says it doesn't have to be that way, though. And so he offers uh, another pathway, which is repentance, return to me, come back to me. Don't just deal with the external stuff. Let's go deeper into the heart. So you don't just have this indictment. You have this call to action. Notice verse 15. Your hands are full of blood. You know what you should do? Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. So verse 16 is fascinating because this, this beginning of the call to direct action, i.e. displaying justice, doing justice, pursuing justice that accords with the standard God has given righteousness that is filled by a heart of mercy, that is filled by an understanding that all people everywhere bear the image of God, all people everywhere have innate dignity, all people everywhere are candidates to become part of the new family, Christian. But it begins not with exterior activity, but inward cleansing. Remove evil from your deeds. Cleanse evil from your heart. It's loaded because as evil is often used when justice is present in the Old Testament in particular, but you also see it in Romans, it really does get to this idea to move towards right affections as it relates to people and as it relates to wrong. So you get Amos 5, 14. You get Romans 12 that both say, hate evil, love, and do good. So this cleansing of evil is also a call to move from emotional neutrality regarding that which is wrong. There's some things that you could be emotionally neutral about. They may cause some fights, relationships again. One of the things that you could be emotionally neutral about, but it causes fights in relationships, is food. What do you want to eat for dinner? I'm good with whatever. That I'm good with whatever, that signifies emotional neutrality. It's like nobody, like, you know, it'll cause an argument, but at the end of the day, do we want pho? 
fuzz so good. Or do we want brisket? I am from Texas. I'm emotionally neutral. But when it comes to wickedness and wrong, emotional neutrality, indifference, leads to injustice. Not the first to say it, won't be the last, but the text calls us to action that is first cleansing of one's heart. Let me say it like this, then I'm gonna move on. In the last week and a half, every major company has sent me a statement in my email. H&M, we're listening. Airbnb, we hear you black people. Forever 21, and I'm just like, okay, look, I appreciate it. Public statements are easy. Personal soul searching is humbling. And this call in verse 16 is to that, the humility of personal soul searching to look inwardly and say, yo, is there any inconsistency in my heart regarding the truth of God and how that should be applied to other people, specifically the vulnerable and people who are oppressed? As you could see, I have a haircut. That's because God doesn't forsake the righteous, all right? <laughs> I was loyal and the Lord was gracious. But before I got my haircut, people were like, yo, Moochie, you should grow your hair. I know I, I've, I've seen it growing from all the hats that you were wearing. It was like kind of poking out from the side, you know? And they were like, you should grow my hair, your hair. And as people started to say that, I started to think to myself, maybe, maybe I should grow my hair, you know? And I talked to my wife. I was like, yo, Diamond, what do you think? You think I should grow my hair? You know, I, I am, you know, maybe twist and, you know. And grade one curl. And, and she was like, um, you know, have you looked in the mirror? I was like, well, sometimes. And she's like, well, Moochie, your hair is growing rapidly in a lot of parts, but it's not growing at all in another part. There's this crown aspect of your head that has no hair growing there. I was like, oh, I did not, I didn't see that. And so what I thought to myself, I was like, these people are telling me to grow my hair. They don't really love me. <laughs> they don't care for me. But then I also was like, man, like, Man, thank you for my wife who could add her vantage point and perspective to something as simple as that. Thank you that I have somebody who could speak to a blind spot. I just can't, I don't see the crown of my hair. I don't see it, but she does. That personal soul searching doesn't have to be private. It could also be communal. People coming alongside, examining, blind spots in our souls so that we can be cleansed of evil. The action continues. It says, don't just cleanse yourself from evil. It says, learn to do good. That matters. Because what it's saying is, take on a posture of emotional affection towards good. You actually desire to understand it. But there's also some informational um, aspects as well. So, so you're not just this emotional, effectual like, posture towards good. It's this like intentional, informational, studious posture towards good. This matters because he's getting ready to say, seek justice. But if you learn good well, then you can apply justice appropriately. Part of the reason why we cringe at certain applications of the justice of God is because we aren't good students of the word of God. We're not good students of people and we aren't good students of culture. We're good parrots, we're good talking points. And so whatever media outlet is going to 
invade your mind and affect your social, cultural, political perspective is going to shape how you think about good. But God said there's only one who calls good. And he said there's only one standard of righteousness. Learn it. Love it. Have that heart of the psalmist. My, my eyes said streams of water because people don't keep your law. People don't keep what's good. Learn to do good. Then he says, seek justice. Now, seeking is, is twofold. There's an aspect of seeking where you're looking for that which is lost. And there's an aspect of seeking where you're looking for that which you desire. Both aspects put seeking as proactive. Seek justice means proactively live in a way that you are righting what's wrong healing and mending what's broken. Seek justice. Correct oppression. That's active again. But what's unique about that is if we take what he's going to do later, what we saw earlier, but he's going to do it later in this text, which is, again, the applying of justice to people, systems, and structures. That is not just correct oppression through conversation, it's correct oppression through challenging, confronting oppressive systems and oppressors. This is Jesus. We love to say, yo, Jesus, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus who was silent on his way to Calvary. Be like Jesus. And I'm like, okay, I will be like Jesus who was silent on his way to Calvary. You know what else? He also said some stuff on his way to Calvary. He was silent before Pilate at one time, but then Pilate, he also said, you know what? You're a puppet king. You have no power. You don't take my life. I lay my life down for these people, and I'm going to take it up again. He speaks truth to, silent, to, to, to Pilate. He speaks truth to power. On the way to Calvary. On the way to the cornerstone of Christianity, a, a bloody cross and a coming resurrection. But there's another part of that that's actually super helpful in this moment that I just felt led to say right now. Jesus died at the hands of an unjust system. Oh, he identifies with those who feel oppressed. Seek justice, correct oppression, which means to speak truth to power in a loving way, to challenge systems and structures that create avenues and environments for wickedness and injustice to flourish, which is contrary to who God is and who his people should be in the very fabric of society. And then he ends with that, bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. That's the quartet of the vulnerable. So whenever you see justice again in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, you, you see righteousness alongside it, or you see mercy emphasized, or you see the quartet of the vulnerable. You see the standard of it, you see the motivation for it, or you see the people who need it the most. But the person who understands the scriptures, even if only one is mentioned, they know all should be present. And the people that need it the most are the people that society steps over, i.e. the vulnerable, those who are most at risk to be taken advantage of. But when you're bringing justice to them, it's not just social, temporary alleviation of pain. It's connecting hope to a larger story, the God who is just. 
The God who is a father to the fatherless. The God who is a husband to the widow and the hurting, who will provide for them. The bridegroom. The God who sits with the sojourner and the immigrant. The God who became poor so that we can become rich in him. So he cares for our poverty. You bring it to those society steps over because those whose society steps over, God seeks out. This is our heritage. It is God's heart. And the hope for Miami is it feels like we are the final frontier for cross-cultural conversations and applications for justice to see the identity of the people of God boom here. I've said it before, saying it again. The brook should look like Publix at six. You go to Publix at six o'clock, any Publix, not the one highly, that's not shots of highly, it's just Publix anywhere else. You got this super diverse place. You're like, oh my gosh, like this is just, so it should look like that, all people, but it should feel like the dinner table at seven. Family, eight people. And Miami is unique in that we have that potential. But we also have to be students of our city and our God. And if we're students of our city, we'll realize that as diverse as Miami is, it is still super segregated. It's like a salad bowl. Carrot, cucumber, Tomato, crouton, unless you're gluten-free. Instead of a melting pot or sancocho, if you will, where all of the ingredients, they're, they're not just in the same space, but they're blended and, and together to have this new dynamic. And the only thing that produces that is the gospel, because the gospel doesn't just bring different people into the same room, it brings different people into the same family. And those different people have different stories, different historical narratives that they're connected to, that they have to learn and grow in. Some repent from, but some cause other people to just say, look at, look at who I am. Look at how the Imago Day was created in me and my unique experience. And then have those stories colliding with the larger story of God. So that we're a city on a hill showing off the very heart of God. We're in a moment where that just doesn't need to be aspirational. That needs to be our actual everyday experience. And I know for us as the church, it is. But Brook Church, we cannot abdicate the privilege and the responsibility to model the future now. Lean into these difficult conversations because here we know we have a home where we listen well and where we look to God to be the final arbiter of truth. Lean in. Our city is hurting. This is the opportunity to give voice to the pain and presence as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you for that. That won't come by strategy. That will come by experiencing the goodness of who you are. Having our hearts radically bombarded by your love and your truth, being connected to this larger 
narrative, this larger community, this larger history, this larger future through grace and inviting people, inviting people to be part of the family. Would our invitation not just be poetic words, but powerful demonstrations of justice? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.